for those just tuning in uh, online, uh, we apologize if you hear this annoying buzz in the background. My guess is that with the time change, uh, we had some issues with the air handling system. Uh, so that would be my guess. Uh, and if you're like me, if you were in the service uh, during the time of confession, I not only confessed my normal sins, but also the sin of what I want to do to that machine since it's buzzing. So you were not alone if you were thinking that. Uh, this Sunday, uh, we start a four-week series that's going to lead us all the way to the beginning of Advent. In this series, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Uh, now, we're not going to be looking at the entire book of Daniel. It would be a very interesting study, and I think we could do that at a later date. But we're going to be looking at the character of Daniel uh, for these next four, ye- four weeks. We're going to start with this week. We're going to look at his uncompromising conviction. Uh, if you've ever studied the book of Daniel, you realize he's a character that has a great deal of conviction. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from him. And I, I believe that God included Daniel's story in the scriptures to be an encouragement to his people. And so uh, we're going to be looking at that. We're going to start by looking at chapter 1 of Daniel. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, let's go ahead and open together to chapter 1. You can follow along on your phone as well. I'll be reading from the ESV, and it'll be on the screens if you want to follow along. And then I invite you, after we finish reading the passage, keep it open so that as we refer to verses throughout, you can follow along. Uh, But let's listen to the Word of God as we look at Daniel. But before I go there, actually, a little bit of background information. So Daniel happens in the Old Testament. It's about roughly 600 years before Jesus. And so it was a long time ago. This is after the the great kingdom of King David, and the empires have, have fallen, the kings have fallen by the wayside, and now we're just seeing this cycle of new powers rising to power, taking over, and then they will fall away and another one will come up. So we're essentially seeing the climb to the rise of the Roman Empire, uh, the Holy Roman Empire, and, and all of that. So we are now in the time when Babylon is taking control. So that's where we are starting. Let's start with verse 1 in chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abignego. But Daniel 
resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of, chief of eunuchs. And the chief of eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has signed your food and your drink. For why would he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. For these four youths God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let us go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather in worship to gather as we recognize the saints who have gone before us on this Sunday where we commemorate All Saints Day. And Lord, we thank you for your holy scriptures that we can study, that we can worship through, that we can read and we can hear your voice and know your ways. And Lord, we pray that as we study this Old Testament prophet of Daniel, that you would give us wisdom and learning about him and the encouragement you provide through his story. Lord, we pray that you would silence any voice in us but your own, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints said, amen. So we start with this question. Were any of you ever involved with the wrong crowd growing up? Anybody? Anybody willing to admit it? Were you ever involved with the wrong crowd? Keith, I knew you were going to raise your hand. In fact, the, direct, the question was directed to you. Did your parents ever worry about the company in which you kept? Anybody? Did they ever perhaps forbid you from spending time with any certain people or groups of people? Yeah? Why was this? Why did your parents have so much concern? And then the parents in the room, why do you have so much concern of who your children is hanging around with? Why? 
You don't want to pick up bad habits. Anybody else? Why? Why is it so important? You become who you relate to. Outside forces are constantly influencing internal change, are they not? Outside forces are constantly influencing internal change. Now, you can get real scientific with that about the pressure systems and all that, but even just the people we're around, the habits, the things we, we learn, the way of speech. I mean, have you ever noticed how sometimes older couples start to look and act the same? I'm kind of scared how Kate and I are probably looking so similar to each other. Hopefully, she's rubbing off on me more than me on her. We'll, we'll put that. That was the way I was saving that, sweetheart. But, I mean, we pick up habits. You see it in families. It's not just a genetic thing all the time. It can be a learn and condition thing. There are outside forces influencing internal change. And this could be a good thing, can it not? I mean, we can use this for great purposes. We use it in the church. I mean, that's one of the important things of the church is that we're trying to influence each other with positive change. That's why we study scripture together, because it's much harder to do on your own and to stay consistent. That's why I'm in a workout group with other men. If I'm doing it by myself, I won't do it. But if I have people keeping me accountable, I'll do it. And they push me beyond what I would do if I were just working out on my own. Scripture's that way. Life is that way. So we can use it in a very positive sense, but it can also be turned to the negative, can it not? I mean, when your, your children or when you were growing up in that bad crowd, you're picking up bad habits, you start thinking things. Maybe you've said some words that you shouldn't say. And you start picking up these bad habits. And we've seen even in history that it's been used in horrible ways. I mean, one of the first things I thought of was Hitler's youth. How Hitler would utilize these young, moldable minds and had his whole youth system to where he's basically building in propaganda and building in his way of thinking, this Aryan thought, so he could create this superior race with these young children. And we can see, looking back on history, of how that could be a very bad thing, can we not? But there's always these outside forces influencing this internal change. Why are we talking about this? Because all the way back in 600 BC, Nebuchadnezzar knew this. He knew it and he utilized this truth and this tactic as the Babylonians came to power, rising in the ashes of the Assyrian Empire. They knew that if they could control the way their prisoners thought, they could shape things. Nebuchadnezzar, we, we learn, took young youth to mold their minds. Today, we're going to explore one of those youth, or actually his whole group of friends, Daniel. And as I mentioned earlier, if you've studied the book of Daniel, you understand that Daniel really was this uncompromising character. I mean, he just had this conviction that we're going to focus on today. And I believe that his conviction had three components that we're going to look at today. Those three components ahead of time are promise, purpose, and perspective. Promise, purpose, and perspective. But let's set the scene. We go to verse 1, 
And we learn in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Why is this important? This is setting up the time frame. This is letting us know when this is happening. Again, this is, this is 600 years prior to Jesus. This is the rise of a new empire as the Assyrians fall away. And we learn that Judah, where Jerusalem is housed, is taken over by Nebuchadnezzar. And he uses this strategy of influencing to take control. Because we learn in verse 3 and 4, the king commanded his chief eunuch to bring before him people of, people of Israel. Not just any people, important people, people of royal family. We believe that Daniel could have been of the royal line or, or was at least the son of an aristocrat of some kind. He was an important youth. These young people, we believe that probably he was around maybe the age of 15. This is, we're not talking about a 30-year-old here. We're talking about a young, impressionable teenager. And he and his friends are taken and they're brought before the, the chief unit. They were looking for people without blemish, it says. They were good in appearance. They were skillful in wisdom. They were endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand before the king. Because they wanted to teach them their literature. They wanted to teach them their language. Nebuchadnezzar wanted the best of the best because he needed them to maintain his empire. We might ask, why would he even bother with exiled youth? I mean, didn't they have good-looking, competent men in their own empire? Well, yeah, they probably did. But this, when you have an empire that's stretching out, you need to employ whatever strategies you can. Because what Nebuchadnezzar really wanted to do, he wanted to control Judah without having to completely conquer it. How do you do that? Influence. You pull in allies. You take these young, impressionable youth. You put into power a puppet king who's going to do what you want them to do. And then you take their very own people and you drill into them this political propaganda, cultural propaganda. And then you, you teach them in your ways to where they not only know it, but they fall in love with it. They become to identify as Babylonians. That's what they wanted to happen. And we see this happen all the time as people from other cultures move to the U.S. and assimilate to our culture. And over time, you see some of their own cultural identity falling away. Unless they really hold conviction to, we're going to keep this as a part of our identity. So often we see it. I mean, we see it in second uh, generation immigrants who can't even speak their own native language from back home. They know English because it's just not reinforced here. And it's happening to us every single day. We're assimilating to our own culture, the people that we're around. And they wanted to utilize Daniel and his companions, all these people, to help influence for Babylon's sake. It's a brilliant plan, isn't it? If you don't want to have to use all of your military might, you brainwash. And even the food played into that. How could you not fall in love with the culture if you're eating the very food that would be at the king's table? Do you think that the king ate bad food? No. The king ate very well. And if these youths for three years are eating the very food the king eats, I mean, they're falling in love like, man, pass the pita. I love these euros. What are these? These are great. 
We've never had this before. The food played into it. What we're really talking about here, we're not just talking about propaganda and all these things. We're talking about identity. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to shape their very identity to the point that we learn that Daniel and his companions are renamed, aren't they not? They're given Babylonian names. We don't know anything about this, do we? We don't know anything about immigrants coming over and their, being, their names being changed. It's a way of controlling identity. So we learn Daniel moves to the name of Belteshazzar. I mean, who doesn't want to be named that? Put that on the top ten baby lists. of a, You want? You don't? Okay, Henry, we will not name you Belteshazzar. But we still may name you Shadrach or Meshach or my favorite, Abednego. If I could rename myself, I would be Abednego. So here you have Daniel and his companions. Their name, they've been, they're moved. They are being taught all these different things. They've been given new food and they've been given new names. All of this happening all at once after being conquered. And I think there's an interesting point we can pull from that alone. As we look at Daniel, just because your situation changes doesn't mean your identity has to change. Just because your situation changes doesn't mean that your identity has to change. Because so often we choose to go that route of change, and it's not always a good thing. It's not always a good thing. So how did Daniel and his companions have so much uncompromising conviction, because yes, we're, we're focusing on Daniel here, because he's kind of the leader of his group, but you know what? The three others, they're not, we don't bat an eye them. Goodness, they, they have conviction just as much to stand with Daniel. They could have easily said, oh, that was Daniel's idea. We're, we're going to hang back here. As we learn, they're right by his side throughout this entire narrative. So how did they have such uncompromising conviction? Wouldn't you want to have that kind of uncompromising conviction? Because how do we stay strong when there's so much pressure around us to conform? Because there is. There is a ton of pressure to conform. Well, let's take a look at verse 8. At verse 8, we see that Daniel has resolved to not defile himself with the food. So he's, he's going to the chief eunuch and he's saying, look, I'm not going to eat all this food. Now, maybe like me, you're looking at it and you're going, okay... Why did he pick food? Because didn't we mention there were a lot of changes going on? He had to move. He's being put through school. He has a new name, and he's been given food, and yet food is the thing that he chooses. He doesn't fight the name change. He doesn't fight the learning. He doesn't fight the move. But he does decide to stand against the food. Why avoid the food? I mean, so much so that he goes to the chief eunuch, and the chief eunuch even says, look, my head would be on the plate because of that. I, I, I can't do that. And so then Daniel goes one below and goes to the steward who's been placed in their care and says, hey, look, let's do this. And then you could kind of t- sense that the guy's hesitant of like, oh, I don't, I don't know about this. It's like, well, I'll propose a test. Why don't we propose a test? So in verse 12, we hear, you know, test your servants. Just 10 days. That's all I'm asking. They're going to be there three years. What is 10 days? days to experiment. And so, for 10 days, they only eat vegetables and water. 
a 10-day diet. Who wants to try that? Vegetables and water for the next 10 days. Who's with me? Okay, I'm not even with me. I'm going to be eating meat. I'm sorry. I'm going to be eating from the king's table. But that's what they eat. Now, there's a lot of debate over why they choose this. And it's kind of hard to resolve. I mean, some people say, well, it's because of kosher laws. They couldn't guarantee that the food was kosher. But, you know, even then, it's like, well, then there's nothing in the kosher law that says you can't drink wine. They drank wine. So some people say, well, it's probably not so much that. Some people believe maybe it's because the food at the Babylonian's table was often given to idols beforehand. And then once the, the, the gods had taken their portion, then it brought back to the king's table and they'd eat it because they wouldn't let the food go to waste. But that doesn't answer the question either because the vegetables were coming from the king's table. And why wouldn't the vegetables be offered as well? Maybe they think the idols don't like their vegetables. Spoken like a true child. Hiding the broccoli behind something. Oh, he likes broccoli? Okay. You like? I like broccoli too. We'll eat broccoli. Maybe, I mean, there could be that. Well, I ran across an interesting theory uh, by Tripper Longman, one of the commentators I was reading. And he says, this is a possibility. However, by refusing to eat the food of the king... They knew it was not the king who was responsible for the fact that they, later on in verse 15, looked healthier and better and nourished than the young men at the, the royal food. Their robust appearance, usually attained by the rich fare of meats and wine, is miraculously achieved through a diet of vegetables. We have a child with food allergies, severe food allergies, and fruits and vegetables is largely all he can eat. And I can tell you that's not a complete diet. I mean, we, we haven't found another form of protein because we haven't even been able to venture to those types of vegetables yet. And so just the fruits and vegetables they're eating, it would not have been enough to sustain them at this time. You know, they didn't have tofu and all the wonderful vegan fare we have today. They would not. Just water in that. There's no way, if it weren't for God, that they would look better that we learn later on than those who are eating the rich fare of food. It only could be God doing this. And to Daniel and his companions, they knew this if it came to be true. So that points us to our first point when we talk about uncompromising convention, our true identities are found in the promises of God. If you want to have true conviction, you have to know who you are. And to know who you are, you have to understand the promises of God. We don't truly understand who we are until we understand who we are in reference to God's promises as our creator. God created you to be good. God created you with gifts. God created you out of love, God promises to lead you toward flourishing. It's us and our sin that we turn away from those promises and choose a lesser life. God's calling us to a greater story. We choose a lesser one. God's promises are good. Often our choices are bad. If you want to have uncompromising conviction, 
Your true identity must be found in the promises of God. The strength and the origin of Daniel's conviction was found in God's promises and that he trusted in God's promises. He trusted in God's provision. I mean, how else would he eat just vegetables and water if he didn't trust in God's provision throughout all of this? He trusted God's goodness even in the midst of immense pressure. And can you imagine a hostile takeover of our own country? And then they come in and they take you and they're pulling you into these indoctrination camps. Can you imagine having that conviction like Daniel or would you break down? I'd love to say that I would have conviction, but I could easily see myself breaking down and being a mess. But Daniel did not. He understood the promises of God. So when life gets rough and the pressure mounts, in what promises do you cling? Do you cling to the right promises? Are they the promises of God? But there's another component to Daniel's conviction. We've discussed the promises, now we look at the purpose. What might help us understand how Daniel could stand and his companions stand so firm against such pressure that we can't even truly understand? I believe survivors of the Holocaust would be the only ones who could truly understand the amount of pressure that Daniel was in. Perhaps some other modern day slaves in other countries today, but us in America... Not so much. So what was the outcome of Daniel's experiment? The 10 days. What happened? He ate veggies. He drank water for 10 days. And at the end of that 10 days, what did we learn? He became good. He was better than the rest. Wasn't that a commercial? You know, better better than the rest. He was better than the rest. I mean, we learn in verse 17... That the four of them were given learning and literature and wisdom and understanding of dreams and visions. They, ex- they not only did better, they excelled. In just ten days, they excelled. We even hear in verse 19 that there was none found like Daniel and his companions. There was none like them. The rest, nobody even came close. They stood out from the rest. Then we learn in verse 20 that Daniel rises in the ranks and is found pleasing before the king at the end. He's found pleasing. In fact, what was it in, in the last verse? It said that they were four times, was it? Ten times. I was even shortchanging them. They were ten times better than people already in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. But here's an interesting point. The results of his test, the king never knew. Nobody knew except the steward, Daniel and his companions. Isn't that interesting? So what was the purpose? I mean, wouldn't this be a miraculous thing for them to see that these people can be nourished on only vegetables and water alone and what a testament is, going, how, how is that happening? And they could say, well, it was only my God. But no, it was only for Daniel and his companions to know. So then whose purpose was this for? 
It wasn't for Daniel necessarily, though they were encouraged by it to see God's provision. Definitely wasn't for Nebuchadnezzar, who knew nothing of it. All he knew was these four youth of, wow, they're great. We're doing a great job. I mean, I'm sure he, th- he gave himself a huge pat on the back. I mean, we did a great job with these. I mean, this is, this is who we want. This is what we want to happen. Let's show this is what we need to happen. But it wasn't for his purpose. It was for God's purpose. This was for God's purpose alone. So we've talked about the promise. If we want to have uncompromising conviction, we have to understand the purpose Our purpose, not just for us, but what God wants for us. The strength of our conviction is found in God's purpose for us and for his creation. Would not God, the creator of everything, not know better than you how you best fit into his created order? God knows better than you how to even utilize your gifts and talents that you have right here and now. I mean, how often do we neglect our talents and our gifts? We don't even nurture them. Or we use them for our own purposes. I mean, I joked with my neighbor who set up for Halloween and had this beautiful Halloween set up, and he spent hours on this conveyor belt system that made a ghost float around. And I told him, I said, if only imagine if you could use these powers for good instead of for evil. I mean, the amount of time and the ingenuity that went into that. I'm not necessarily saying that he's abusing his, his gifts and talents and that thing, but how often we use them, our gifts for other things, God knows. And if we understand our purpose and how we fit in this larger story, we can hold great conviction. It's tough to have conviction when you're hopeless, isn't it? And that's something that's a part of the vision of this church, is that we see far too many people hurting and hopeless out in our world. And we believe that they need hope and they need healing, but that's not something that we alone can provide. Only God can provide the true hope and the true healing that we need. Only God can help us understand how we fit into this larger story. And I guarantee you do have a place in it. You fit. God knit you and created you for that. The strength of our deepest conviction is not in what we control, but in the God who is in control. The strength of our deepest conviction is not in what we can control, but in the God who is in control. Just as God had a purpose for Daniel and all of his companions, a prophet still serving as encouragement to us today, God has a purpose for each and every one of us. Daniel may not have completely understood the role that he would play. He likely didn't know. But yet, he was still convicted because he trusted in God's purpose for him. I mean, how could he know? He was only 15, 16, somewhere around there. But he trusted God's purpose for him and God's promise. And his conviction is rooted in that. Do you understand God's purpose for you? Do you have a glimpse at it? Are you seeking God's purpose for you, or are you pursuing comfort, pleasure, notoriety, instead of God's purpose? We've all been guilty of the latter, haven't we? We pursue what's comfortable. I'd say one of the largest idols in our own country is comfort and security. 
often at the expense of others. And so often at the expense of God's purpose for us. Do you think God always wants us to take the safe route? When we place our trust in the safety of other things instead of him? Are you seeking God's purpose for you or are you pursuing comfort, pleasure, and notoriety? I think this is a question we have to wrestle with, each and every one of us. Every day, sometimes several times a day, as we look ahead. If we want to have uncompromising conviction, we have to be able to answer that question. So we've talked about the promise. We've talked about the purpose. So what was the third? Perspective. What is the perspective we're looking at here? There's another component to, to Daniel's deep, uncompromising conviction, and it's sprinkled all throughout the chapter. So I want to look at three different verses. Let's go back to verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king. Let's go to verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. God gave. In verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in visions and dreams. Anybody see a reoccurring theme here? Who gave? God gave. I mean, how often do we read through this narrative and we miss that part? We're like, okay, Daniel rose to the ranks, he excelled. Uh, yeah, that's, that's great. But it's very clear who's at work. Who is in control in this? Is it Nebuchadnezzar and his empire? It's God. It wasn't even Daniel and his companions. They weren't in control. God is in control. Why? Would this be so important for us? Because as we look to our third point, as we look at uncompromising conviction, a heavenly perspective shapes your worldly perspective. And if you, we could use eternal perspective there as well. An eternal perspective shapes your worldly perspective. I mean, how often... Do we miss things because we have such a narrow perspective? And we miss what's going on. We sometimes literally have to take a step back to see. And if not literal, sometimes it's just figuratively looking and seeing what God is doing, how everything fits together. True uncompromising conviction comes when we not only understand the promise and our purpose, but we choose to see the world through a proper perspective. Daniel knew he was but a small piece to a much larger picture. And that was the strength of his conviction. God was using them somehow. God is in control, but that doesn't need to be scary. We should find it comforting that God is in control. We like to turn it around and go, well, how could God be so good with such horrible things happening? But we don't understand how it's all working together. We have to trust in God's promise. We have to trust in God's purpose. We have to trust 
and God's love and goodness. And that doesn't necessarily mean we need to always go around saying, well, you know, it's, it's God's doing, so it's okay. No, we can still grieve when horrible things happen. Like someone dying. Or a terrorist attack. Or a natural disaster. Wars. All of these things are horrible things. But in the end... God is in control, and we don't know how all of this is fitting together for his end, because we do know how it ends. We studied the book of Revelation. Who wins in the end? God wins. So God knows how everything's going to play out, and everything is bringing us closer into his presence. Our eternal perspective shapes our worldly perspective. So we've learned just in chapter 1 alone that Daniel's uncompromising conviction really has these three components. He understood the promises of God. He understood his purpose in relation to those promises, and he had a perspective that helped him to see those things. If you want to have uncompromising conviction, we must hold to the promise, the purpose and the perspective that God gives us. Amen? Let's go to God in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for the promises you give us, for the purpose that you set before us, calling us to be a part of a larger story. And we thank you for the perspective we can only have when we come to you. Help strengthen 